0: Nevers College, Beaver Falls, Pennsylvania. A beautiful Friday afternoon, September 24, 1971. Bible 324, Biblical Archaeology, beginning the study of Dr. Merrill Unger's book, Archaeology and the Old Testament. All right, now uh, we're going to leave Sir Leonard Woolley, and let's... Somebody wants to bring up something. Yeah, Mr. Nair. Questions number 28, 29, and 30. All right, let's see what's in. Uh, 29, 29, and 30. When the archaeologist is dealing with a series of layers or strata, what one fact can he be sure of to start with as to chronology? That means the relation of these layers to the uh, passing of time. Now, uh, I think we mentioned this last time, but what what is the one fact that he can be absolutely sure of? All right, what is it, sir? The light is on the bottom. Yeah. Since the layer cake was, was formed from the bottom up, why, obviously, the top layer is the most recent. And this he can be sure of. It's undisturbed. What's on top is the most recent and the further down you go, the older the stuff is. So you get to the bottom layer that has any kind of signs of humanity in it. And that's the end. And underneath that's just clay or rock or sand or whatever it is. Leonard Woolley digging in um, near Ur of the Caldees. His workmen came down to clean sand and they said the. This is the end. Might as well quit. And Willie, on a hunch, told him to dig further, and they dug through that six to eight feet deep and came on a, another layer that had uh, broken chariot wheels, uh, broken pottery, uh, charcoal, and some bones in it. And the Willie said that this was uh, a pre-flood civilization. It's the six to eight foot layer was deposited by the flood of Noah's day, this was later, however, disproved, it could not have been. But anyway, um, uh, you see, the farther you go, the older it is. And each little layer, which might be uh, only a few inches maybe, or a foot or two, is one era of time that this place was inhabited. People lived there and used it. And when it was destroyed, abandoned, and then later another layer built on top of What remains is just not the whole height of a city that would be 12 feet maybe or something, but just a foot or so, the base, the the floors and foundation. All right, now that's 28. 29, why do archaeologists publish in learned professional journals large masses of detailed observations? Now first I'll read you my own note on this and then I'll comment on it. They do this so that, by the teamwork of many scholars in the same and related fields, knowledge may be advanced much more than it could be by even the most outstanding work of any one. The cooperation of field archaeologists, epigraphists, geologists, architect, anthropologists, etc., is needed to reach final conclusions. <coughs> Results from one site can be coordinated with those from another. The field archaeologist is a collector of data, most of which must be analyzed and interpreted by others. Now, you see, this is teamwork versus freelance work. Freelance work might be more fun, maybe, without anybody to tell you anything to do, but then it isn't what gets the real results in the end. And therefore, a great deal of what archaeologists find. They record everything, you know, they photograph everything, they catalog everything. It's about as thrilling reading as the city directory or the telephone book, although that's thrilling to some people, but not very... um, not very interesting reading. It's pretty dull stuff. And most professional archaeologists, I guess Willie could be an exception to this, but most professional archaeologists are um, rather poor writers. And what they have to write about is rather, oh, um, um, prosaic and statistical. But this has to be done. And this puts it on record, you see, and it becomes available to scholars all over the world. They're, Number of learned journals in this field, and, and, and these, these are these international in their distribution and scope, and so scholars all over the world have access to what any one investigator has found, and this is the way that progress can be made, so that this becomes not merely, a, let's say, a scavenger hunt, but um, it becomes a real building up of a of a reliable and um, uh, a tried and true body of knowledge. Now Mr. Mary, that answer that. Okay. What is the borderline between archaeology and history? There is no clear cut line. Where archaeology recovers written records, it provides data for history. Where no written records are found, the data contribute to our knowledge of what is called prehistory. For real history, we must have names of actual people and their dates. Now let's say archaeology is a service discipline, and whom does it serve? It serves prehistory and history both. When it finds bones and um, objects without written records, it serves the, the uh, field of prehistory. And when it finds written records, as it sometimes does, it serves the field of, of history. Just um, Before lunch, I was waiting uh, to get a flu shot in the doctor's office downtown. I had to wait a little while and picked up a magazine and started to read it. And here was an article by Dr. Cyrus Gordon, a Jewish and a famous archaeologist uh, from Philadelphia, I believe. And he tells about a piece of carved stone found in Tennessee with Hebrew writing on it dating from way back, um, oh, in the early times, somewhere around um, 1 or 200 BC. And um, uh, he thinks this proves that neither Columbus nor Ruth Erickson wins the award. But this is proof that it was misclassified for a long time as a Cherokee Indian inscription from the Smithsonian Institution in Washington. But Cyrus Gordon, who um, I have to admit he isn't a cubby, but on the other hand, he's nobody's fool either. Harris <laughs> <And>, uh, <laughs> Jordan is a uh, uh, man of, uh, well, he thinks the linear A script in Greek is Semitic, akin to Hebrew, and this is disputed by others. It's highly controversial, but when he writes something, he can be sure to start with, just like the archaeologists can be sure. The top layer is the youngest. And if Gordon writes something, you can be sure it isn't nonsense. Because he's got really just something to say and at least a case to make. Well, this is rather fascinating. Who would have thought that the early inhabitants of Tennessee were Jewish? Uh, and of course, this isn't finished. The scholars will do some more on this. Uh, it's kind of a clue that leads them on to more things. Now, archaeology then is a service science. And it serves prehistory in the absence of written records, and it serves real history in the presence of written records. You see, uh, well, let's say the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls. You call that an archaeological discovery? Well, it was an accidental discovery, but since then, the, uh, there's sort of more of them in classifying and sorting the mountains. So, well, this is archaeology. But the product of it is written records. So this is real history. These <coughs> come from just before and, and maybe a little bit just after the time of crack. Now, there any more on Willie's book? I'm at twenty-five and twenty-seven. Twenty-five. What's not twenty-six? <laughs> All right, twenty-five. This is good. What is the first principle of grave digging? Now, uh, if you're in Pennsylvania. Principleers don't dig without a permit from the next of kin. But uh, in archaeology, the, what is the first principle of grave digging? In the Willie's book. it's the kind of thing that might come up on the text, you know. All right, what is it? Nothing shall, Nothing shall be moved until everything has been reported. Yeah. And uh, you see the zealous amateur uh, digger, archaeologist, he's in a hurry to get that stuff out and make something of it. The real archaeologist who goes by the real uh, tried-and-true rules of the game, they don't move a thing <clears throat> until everything has been photographed, plotted on a three-dimensional diagram, a tag number tied onto it or fastened to it, and this recorded again in a record of when it was found and exactly where it was found and even in a grave uh, how far from the surface and how far from one end how far from the other, everything recorded. And um, drawings and numerous photographs are made. And then when this is finally finished, why, then you can take the things away if you've taken them somewhere and even tear the level up to get it what's underneath. Now, um, everything must be shown by the drawings or photographs, in in situ that means in its original place as found and um, well he says this is not easy but it has to be done in one Egyptian tomb workers spent 280 days that's um, two thirds of a year I guess and took over a thousand photographs clearing that single tomb now, you know who benefits from this? Eastern Kodak Company does. <laughs> uh, it's expensive to take photographs that way, but this is uh, one reason why it costs money to do this kind of a job the way it ought to be done and not just in some hit-or-miss fashion. Now, what was your other one? Mr. 27. What, uh, what happens when written tablets of unbaked clay, when these are removed from the soil and exposed to the air? Now, um dishes and flower pots, uh, what we call ceramics are made of clay. And in the ancient world they had two kinds. Bricks, for instance, that buildings were built of. They had sun-dried bricks and they had fired bricks. Sun-dried ones and, and the Israelites made for Pharaoh in Egypt with a little straw to kind of hold it together. These are baked out in the hot, the oriental sun and they are preserved all right as long as they're underground in a wall. But when you get them out and exposed to dew and rain and wind and air and weather, they begin to go to pieces. Many were dug up at Babylon with Nebuchadnezzar's um, John Henry on them. And um, when they were found, they were in good condition after 2,500 years. But uh, when left to be exposed to the air, they soon begin to crumble. So then the other kind that they used were fired in a kill or furnace heated extremely hot the way we fire dishes today. This suffuses the tiny silicon and other particles in the clay and makes it hard so that it becomes permanent like a dish or Mm -hmm. tile or (coughs) pot is today. And after this um, barring accidental breakage it will last forever. And uh, what the archaeologists do is to um, any of these tablets that are on clay. They're about to think of stone tablets. I've seen pictures of Moses coming down Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the Ten Commandments, lugging them down under each arm, a, a stone that would weigh about three tons under each arm. Well, that does fine for kids' picture books, but the, they were probably not as big as that sort of paperback book. And uh, writing was the, in the cuneiform, form of wedge-shaped writing, of course. written with the hand of God, it says. Anyway, these uh, written tablets with the cuneiform or other writing on, they found out that at this late date, when these are uncovered from the soil, they can still be fired and become permanent. And they had a lot of um, old crankcase, well... I don't know what they do with that in this country. Some say they use it for Kentucky Fried Chicken, but um, old crank-taste oil that uh, would have been thrown away, I guess, but it will burn, get it started. They fixed up a thing with a forced draft that burned their uh, used-up oil from the trashies and things, and um, this could heat these tablets up to somewhere around 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, and then they have to be cooled off slowly after that, and when that's been done for them, they're hard, and they're permanently hard. It makes a physical change in the clay that will keep it hard and permanent. This is what they what they do for you. So the ones you see in a museum have presumably been fired since they were discovered in order to make them last. Now these, these clay tablets, the Babylonians had an interesting gimmick of a, of a contract. A marriage contract or contract to build a house or something like that, they'd write it on a clay tablet. Then they smear a little oil or grease on it and then put another layer of clay over that and write the same thing on the outside one. And then if there's a lawsuit or a dispute about it, you go know, to court before the judges and they read the thing, then they crack it open and read the inside one. And if it reads just like the outside one, why well, it's on the level. There's no monkey business here. But if the inside one reads differently from the outside one, oh boy, somebody has tried to get away with something and uh, proceed proceed according to the law And dealing with this part. Probably ties hands behind back and throw him in the Euphrates River or some other such uh, corrective treatment. But anyway, uh, that's what they used to do to The simplest way of the uh, disposes of the criminal and the corpse both. They tied their hands behind her back. A woman, unfaithful to her husband, tied her hands behind her back and talked her in the river. And on the face of his wife, he had to take 20 pieces of silver. <laughs> or something like this. That's Pamela Robbie's ball. All right, any more on Willie's book? Yeah, Mr. Harris. Is there any reason why people um, build cities over top of their own? I mean, do you mean they build one on top of their own? Why that's a particular case? Well, um, it's always good to have a city on a hike easier to defend it. The enemy that's going to attack it has to climb upwards. And these were originally on the ground level. The, first, the oldest city was presumably on the level of the surrounding terrain. But the, when uh, this is uh, destroyed, either by war or by a calamity of some kind, or um, whatever, they just it's, it, it's expensive. They had no bulldozers. It was a terrific labor to clear the land, take all that earth away, and throw it away somewhere. So they would just grade it off and build on this. So each one was a little higher, and uh, Willie points out that this gave the the advantage of getting a little bit of further out of the dampness. Higher up you get every higher level, and you're high and dry, as the saying is. This would be one reason. I think that the uh, the other reason is that uh, it was it was easier to build on a site like this that was leveled off and already had some elevation than to start to. From the flat ground nearby, maybe, in condensed land for a city. And these cities grew, of course. They weren't all uh, at their full size when they were begun. They'd start with a few houses, maybe. Now, anybody else got them? Well, so we we'll passed them on to Dr. Unger's book um, The Role of Archaeology in the Study of the New Testament. Now, let me say, archaeology has been overrated and it has been underrated. It's been underrated by some people who um, think um, it's unworthy of having attention paid to it. And there are others that have overrated this and really gone overboard on it. I spoke about the layer of clay with the chariot wheels underneath. Give you an example of overrating archaeology. Halle Pocket Bible Handbook, just Halley's Bible Handbook. Now he got the big, kind of bigger every year, so it wouldn't go in anybody's pocket. So he started calling this Halley's Bible Handbook. used to be a thing a little bigger than that. Chicago businessman. He's an amazing speaker. And a pretty good production too. But he um, he really went to town on this thing about Woolley and claimed that Leonard Woolley had the Bible story of Noah's flood by discovering these uh, artifacts and remains underneath this flood layer. Now this uh, was mentioned in countless sermons and used by countless Bible teachers as ammunition against unbelievers and so forth but unfortunately it was later proved impossible. The um, Flood layer was found again, a hundred miles north, at a place called Kish. And this will come to you later. But this one and the one at Ur er didn't even happen in the same century. It could be dated to different centuries. And you see, this was only a local flood of the Tigris and Euphrates rivers. And Woolley did not believe. He's not a, he was not a believer in the infallibility of the Bible. He was a liberal, uh, naive, and. Uh, let's say, an uh, unsophisticated liberal in his attitude toward the Bible, and he held the flood was a local flood. Now, this involves all kinds of problems as soon as you get out of the immediate area of that river valley. What keeps the water of a local flood from standing up and getting shallower and shallower the farther out it goes? You see, it isn't going to stay like uh, like it had walls around it. And uh, here, this uh, was no doubt a of a flood right there near Ur the No doubt about that. But um, this wouldn't happen so suddenly, but what lots of people could get away to high ground a few miles away. They could get to mountains less than 100 miles away, about 50 or 60. And um, so this couldn't have been a flood that, that drowned the human race, except for the family of Noah. But Halley's Bible Handbook, you see, made great capital of this. And the trouble is, you climb a tree like this and later you find that, how they say in China in a proverb, he who rides a tiger will find it difficult to dismount. (laughs) 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 Tiger, i get off on these things. (laughs) So uh, this would be overvaluing archaeology, jumping to conclusions like that and claiming it has proved something that it hasn't really proved. And when this is finally shown up and discredited then by other scholars, then believers in the Bible get a bad name for this, this, you see, because they made so much of it. It's much better to keep your cool and reserve judgment on some of these things than it is to climb a tree on them. All right, now, um, just to run over some of his questions here, number one, archaeology is based on excavation, decipherment, and critical evaluation of the records of the past. And Biblical archaeology is based on these as they touch directly or indirectly on the Bible and its message. Now you see, Biblical archaeology is not equatable with the archaeology of Palestine or with the archaeology of people or things mentioned in the Bible. Mentioned in the book of Isaiah, but otherwise unknown historically. I think you can show the um, library and so forth of this. Were found in a book about 100 years ago, and that's it. so for sure. Nobody questions that there was a thing in that today. All right, so, directly or indirectly, you know, on the Bible and its message. Now, uh, the current enthusiasm for the study of biblical archaeology, Under says, arises from the importance of the Bible itself. You can have archaeology of every country. China, France, Scandinavia, but there is no branch of archaeology that has intrigued more people and um, interested more people than biblical archaeology because there are millions of people to whom the Bible is the word of God, and anything bearing on this is of interest to them. Now, Hunger says, prior to 1800, there was almost no extra biblical knowledge of the Old Testament period. He says almost no. Prior to 1800. You know, uh, who was it fought the Battle of Jericho? According to the song. Joshua fought the Battle of Jericho, and it all came tumbling down. Well, I kind of think the Lord had something to do with the Battle of Jericho. But anyway, uh, writers used to say that um, the Canaanites are described, they got a bad press in the Bible, you know. They're described as. Uh, pretty wicked people, and pretty wild and cruel, and, and immoral, and uh, pretty low down on the human scale. And that this is simply the way the Israelites pictured them, because they were their enemies, so they pictured them in a bad light, like, well, during World War II, we used to have cartoons on billboards that caricatured the Japanese. That, no Japanese, not the ugliest in Tokyo, looked like uh, what was on some of those cartoons on the billboard. They are quite human as we are, even though at the time they were our enemies. Well, uh, that the Canaanites got a bad write-up because the Israelites were their enemies and hated them. This, of course, doesn't match the facts. The facts are that the Lord had an awful time to keep the Israelites from marrying them. They seem to... Sort of enjoy this type of mixed marriage. But, <laughs> but anyhow, uh, before 1900, or no, 1800, let's say, there was almost nothing known about the Canaanites except what's in the Bible and in one Greek writer, Philo of a Phoenician himself of the Canaanite culture. He didn't picture them as very nice either. But uh, maybe they thought he was biased too. And archaeology has turned a spotlight on this. There's no doubt about it, the Canaanites were absolutely, bar none, the world's dirtiest and worst people. I mean, ethically, and morally, and in point of human value. Maybe they needed some soap too. I wouldn't suggest that either. But anyhow, this uh, fire at 1800, you had to just take it on faith from the Bible. And since then, a tremendous amount of material has come to light. Now, real progress began when. What's the date he gives for the beginning of the the, the the end of marching time, the beginning of really going forward in archaeology? All right, when was it? Seventeen ninety-eight, and this was when that bloody Napoleon Bonaparte marched to Egypt. You think Napoleon was a Christian? Well. I don't think so, but it's first squadron I know for sure. He marched his men with Napoleon was a stage actor. There was one. He, he uh, marshaled his army below the pyramids and then made a speech in which he said, Ben, the ages are looking down upon you. That's Napoleon. He um, then had to write a letter that would be written by some important figure in history, junior high some historical important person. So he chose Napoleon. And this is what he wrote. This is a letter as from Napoleon. Dear Josephine. That was the empress. I didn't do so well at Waterloo. Lots of love, Napoleon. (laughs) Well, Napoleon, however, was not merely a... um, military adventurer and so forth. He certainly drenched Europe in blood. It took the combined nations of Europe about 20 years to get him put on an island in the ocean uh, where he couldn't do more harm. But um, he he had a scholarly interest in things and took a certain number of antiquarians and scholars and language students and so forth to some of these countries with him. And he took some to Egypt. And um, the... First great discovery. If you want one date that marks the beginning of March archaeology, it was the discovery of the Rosetta Stone in the Nile Delta by a scholar working with Napoleon's army. Now, I think there's a little picture of that in um, your uh, book by Unger, but I've got a much better one here. I've got two of them. passed it around. and have uh, to some other pictures in this as well. This is by Dr. Wiseman of the British Museum. Usually the middle of the station is behind the right. It's a That's one of the real ones. He was kicking and back there, and I have different places. I'm here to all the students to find this book. better than I. I'm to really haven't chosen me, so we can do it. Now this um, this for the first time in history gave scholars a clue to the reading of the Egyptian hieroglyphs. Do you know students really really haven't said anything so we I can do it. Now this um, this for the first time in history gave scholars a clue to the reading of the Egyptian hieroglyphs. Do you know that learned scholars in big universities before that couldn't even agree as to whether that stuff was writing or not? They said it was Egyptian modern art. All these little birds and so forth on there. (laughs) And there was not even agreement as to whether it was a form of writing. Of course it was. And um, a fellow named Champollion... Hampiouo French. and Frenchman finally cracked this code of writing and uh, translated some of it. And later on, there was um, some um, question. Let's see, was this about the Egyptian or the Cuneiform? Anyhow, in England, a question about whether the scholars were were, were pulling the public's leg and making up this translation. And they got a new one that had been discovered and gave it to three different scholars to translate and. They did, and came out with, not exactly, but approximately, the same translation. So this proved it. Well, the Rosetta Stone. And the Behistun inscription, the decipherment of this, you know, that's on page, you'll find it in the little book on page 98, the Behistun inscription. This is what gave the clue to the Assyrian and Babylonian cuneiform, that little wedge-shaped writing and opened up the vast treasures of Babylonia and Assyria and Persia to modern scholarship. Page, uh, page 98 is the biggest uninscription. inscription. It's uh, men in Rawlinson, middle the 1800s, that discovered this, and um, it was inaccessible. High up the high cliff, you'd break your neck trying to get near the thing. And he finally employed a little local boy who left there barefoot and made carbon squeezes, carbon paper, two-sided carbon, thin paper and smear it all over and get an impression of it in this way. Today, this would be a dead cinch with a helicopter, like we lowered the um, air conditioning equipment out of the new dining hall. That's the thing, a helicopter, you know, get over top and let it down. But the B. been inscription was later photographed with telephoto lenses. But uh, they couldn't do that when it was first discovered, and this little Kurdish boy, a native kid of the locality there, he was uh, paid some real bucksheesh for climbing up there, and he didn't miss his footing or lose his life, no ropes or anything to hold him, but this, this provided the key to the cuneiform. Now, uh, Unger asks for uh, syllabus for some of the great finds since 1900. And these are also, um, several of them, pictured in that book. The Code of Hammurabi, page 27. The Elefantini, I'll speak of these in a minute, Elefantini Papyri, Bogaz Cuyi that's a Turkish name that's where the Hittite civilization was discovered if you want the Hittite name it's Hattusus but it has the euphonious Turkish name of Bogaz Kui and uh, the tomb of Tutankhamen 1922 the Ras Shamra text northern Syria they're still finding things there the Fatal sisters in our library have been there and seen it they won't let you touch anything but if you don't too hard to let you look at it. What they're digging up there, Rosh northern Syria. It's uh, not far from Latakia, where the Reformed Christian Church uh, had, had, still has a girls' school and did have missionary work till the Syrians threw the missionaries out. And the uh, Lakeish ostraca. These are from uh, 586 B.C., time of the fall of Jerusalem. And are uh, interesting because they're written on ink, in ink, on broken pottery. Letters written in ink, black ink. One of the men that discovered these was shot by robbers in Palestine. They use archaeologists occasionally for target cracks. anyhow, it was a tragic death. This man had great promise, and he was only a young man, and was was shot by uh, people who uh, didn't even know who he was. And the Dead Sea Scrolls, of course, starting in 1947. Now, all of these things, I don't think you need to um, burden down your memory, or even your notes with them at this point, because all of them will come up uh, later in the book, uh, not the tomb of King Tooth maybe, but all the rest of these as we go along in Dr. Unger's books. The Code of Hammurabi is a law code. It has 280 laws. It's a five-foot-high black column of stone, and it was discovered... In, he was king of Babylon, but it was discovered in Elam, part of Iran today. It has been stolen and taken there by somebody in ancient times. And you'd be interested in the, some of these laws a doctor who operates on a patient and the patient dies they cut off the doctor's right hand he does it again cut off his left hand after this he has to operate with his toes <laughs> uh, would you want to be a practitioner of surgery under those rules well there's a lot more and um it's often been compared to the laws of Moses, however the Code of Hammurabi has cruel and barbarous penalties that are uh, not found in the Law of Moses, except for one offense maybe. But anyway, um, the interesting thing about Hammurabi's Code is that it is now believed this was never the working law code of any country. This was a literary composition, just the kind of an ideal construction like uh, Moore's Utopia or Plato's Republic so this was simply uh, somebody wrote this up this is what the code of laws in a proper country ought to be but there's no evidence of any prosecution under the code of Hammurabi or of it being enforced or being the working law code of anybody Bogaz Curi, that's up in um, Central Turkey where the Hittite civilization was discovered the tomb of Tutankhamen discovered 1922 Rashom, the texts, text, 1929. The Lakish letters, or ostraca, 21 letters, they're military dispatches. About the war that was going on between Judah and Babylon, just a little bit before everything collapsed, and Babylon won, and Jerusalem was destroyed, and so forth. Jews taken captive. Uh, military dispatches from Lakish. One thing these bring out, and we'll come to them too, is the they had a system of signaling by fires built on hilltops, and they could signal not quite as fast as um, two-way radio, but um, it was pretty effective. They could get a message to any point that was reachable by this in a matter of a few minutes, by these fires. And they blanked the fire out by holding something in front of it and then take that away and, and it made signals. All right, now the meaning of the Old Testament. For a true grasp of biblical archaeology, scientific and technical training are not enough, says Unger. There must also be a religious appreciation of the Old Testament. Now stop and think, is that true? Could you really grasp this and do justice to it if you had only a technical interest in it? And we're not personally in sympathy with what it means and stands for. Is it necessary to have sympathy with something to fully appreciate it and do justice to it? What do you think, Mr. Dennison? Or is hunger being a, a narrow mind here? Well, you know something... Uh, I, this has been pointed out. The Encyclopedia Britannica has an article on every religious system in the world in And with one exception, every one of those is written by somebody that believed in that system and is a member of it, or has approved what was written there. The one exception is historic Christianity, which is written by its enemies. It's critics. The article on Christianity in the Encyclopedia Britannica is written by people who are basically unfriendly to historical biblical Christianity, what we would call the evangelical Christian faith. This is the one exception that proves the rule. Zoroastrianism, as fair as the day is long, written by a Zoroastrian, but not Christianity. Now, somebody that writes an article on Christianity and isn't a Christian do you think he could really do justice to it? Just, let's say, looking at the uh, idea of uh, the sovereign grace of God and justification by faith and so forth, would, would a person to whom these are merely words be able to, um, to handle this uh, in, a, in a fair and adequate way? Well, hunger thinks not. Now, of course, you can stretch this too far, uh, piece of bone is what it is and uh, it, you could say it means what it means but to understand uh, biblical archaeology and its true perspective and dimensions a certain amount of sympathy with the biblical system is needed of course we have this but um, some people don't and um, so a religious appreciation for the let's say the best approach to this alright now um um, the Old Testament, Unger is a conservative, he says the Old Testament is the inspired revelation of God, remarkably preserved from destruction and also from contamination by later and legendary material. This will be uh, very clearly brought out when we compare the Babylonian story of the flood with the biblical story of the flood. You don't have to guess which of them has the most fairytale thing. Uh, Good looks, will show this. But uh, legendary material, you see. Uh, Lunger says the divine human character of the Bible and the Old Testament must always be kept in mind fully to grasp its import. And the Old Testament is indispensable for the New Testament. Now, I have heard some real Christians say the Old Testament was for the Jews and the New Testament is for Christians in the start, what would you say about that? That's correct, the Old Testament for the Jews and the New Testament for Christians. Well, it's true, but it doesn't go far enough. The Old Testament and the New Testament are for Jews and Christians. <laughs> but this is a very crude statement, you see. This implies that um, they are unrelated. Now, um, Jesus and the apostles, at every point, are conscious of continuity between what they are presenting in the Old Testament system. It purports to be the historical continuation of it and the outcome of it, and uh, the proper fulfillment of it. And therefore, these are not like A and B, simply two entities that uh, happen to be put together in our Bible, but uh, the one is organically related to and tied up with the other Old saying from the early church fathers. I think it was Tertullian, maybe in 200 AD. I said um, he said it in Latin, but I'll say it in English. Uh, the Old Testament, the New Testament, is concealed in the old, and the Old Testament stands revealed in the new. And this is this is very true. The Old Testament is preliminary; it's an incomplete book in itself, but it stands revealed in its true important meaning in the New Testament. The New Testament on the other hand has its origins and its roots in the Old Testament. So the Bible is an organic unity. Now, Unger says the Bible is the specialized history of human redemption. What does this kind of a statement mean? What do you mean by saying the Bible is the specialized history of human redemption? All right? The Bible is centered in Jesus Christ. The Old Testament looks forward to Christ. The New Testament looks back to Christ. He's the center of the Bible and his redemption. He's dying on the cross and rising from the dead. This is the center of Scripture. And things that are not directly preparatory to this are mentioned only incidentally or left out entirely. Here, just to illustrate this, the Israelites um, in Egypt had to pass over, and in Egypt they had lived in miserable old uh, mud huts. Some have been found, not the ones the Israelites lived in, but some that must have been like them. i tell you, they went to Geneva Arms Apartments, either. And uh, <laughs> a little later, they across the Red Sea and you find them living in tents. Now, where on earth did these people get those tents? I can only tell you negatively they didn't get them from U.S. Army Surplus. <laughs> Neither did they get them from Sears Roebuck or J.C. Penney. They must have made them. When did they make them and where did they get the material? Not a word about it. Now you see, if this were a Pentagon-style history of the Exodus, it would tell this logistical information, but it doesn't. It's concerned to tell how these people from whom Christ was descended got out of Egypt into their true home country, where Christ would finally be born. Where they got their tents, as far as the Bible is concerned, that they must have gotten them from somewhere. I don't think God dropped those out of heaven by miracle. But uh, they must have made them, but uh, this isn't mentioned. So the Bible is, the Old Testament is um, like an arrow shot down through the ages of time. It's, uh, it's a pointer that points to Bethlehem and Calvary. And everything that's incidental of this, there's one chapter in Genesis I just got through studying it in my church group on the Dukes of Edom, and they're the descendants of Esau. They're incidental. They're listed because the Israelites needed to know who these Edomites are. They're, they're relatives, and also their enemies. But to, they needed to, to know who they were, and well, you put them into the human scheme. But they're only incidental. So after about 30 or verses, the Edomites are dropped and the descendants of Jacob they're carried on too Christ is descended from them you see so we've his history and there's uh, also of course an element of prophecy and Christ is the center of scripture and anybody that that reads the Old Testament and doesn't see this is blind to its real meaning Paul said that the Jews of his day when Moses was read had a veil upon them and um, they were, they were uh, let's say, unaware of the main thing in the Old Testament. Jesus spoke to the two disciples on the road to Emmaus, and it said, expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Anybody tell you there's nothing about Christ in the Old Testament, you tell them they're superficial, they should dig a little deeper. And they'll find something. But anyway, now then contributions of archaeology to the study of the Old Testament. And first of all, Unger takes up that archaeology authenticates the Bible, and he says the Bible does not need proof. That is, we don't need archaeology to be Christian believers. And uh, proof by facts cannot replace faith. Does that mean that, uh, let's say, uh, facts that are discovered are valueless? You can't convert an unbeliever. You pick out somebody that's a hard-shelled unbeliever and start reading biblical archaeology to him. Well, let's make him a Christian. Well, you see, the trouble with the unbeliever is not merely intellectual, but also spiritual, and this is beyond our power to change by argument. God can do it, but to therefore, argument alone does not convert anybody. Now, don't. And this is the point is this. This does not mean that the argument is useless or worthless. God can use it and has many a time to help somebody to get to a position of faith. But just the, the argument or the evidence or the facts in themselves, unless the Holy Spirit is moving this person, will not bring about their conversion and they'll... You chase them out of one corner, they go hide in another. That's the way they do Now, uh, proof does not convince unbelieving scholars. It will never solve all our problems, but it does, hold it just a minute, have a secondary role. It silences some radical theories and turns them off and limits greatly the harm they can do. Now, just before we disband, how many of you have heard the little story I told in some classes about Robert Ingersoll? He was a fellow who lived... uh, His heyday was 1890-1900. An unbeliever, I guess an atheist, and he had a lecture called The Mistakes of Moses. And went around giving this in all the principal cities of the United States. And Ingersoll was a smart enough fellow that he was quite a psychologist. He realized more people would come to hear this if he charged money than if it was free. So it cost a dollar to hear Ingersoll on The Mistakes of Moses. And a man was selling tickets and asked the gentleman, sir, would you care to spend one dollar to hear Ingersoll on the mistakes of Moses? Nope. I understood. Tell you what. Give you five dollars cash on the barrel head to hear Moses on the mistakes of Ingersoll.